We're going to open up the Word of God together today and turn through to the letter of Hebrews. As, as we all know, we finished off Titus in my absence. I was sad to miss the ending of the book, but that's all right. We turn to Hebrews today. What I'm planning on doing is doing a short series, working our way through the, the Hall of Faith, some people call it, Hebrews 11. We're going to do some character studies or maybe faith studies, we could say, and work our way through the different people in Hebrews 11. In order to introduce us to that, it's helpful for us to know what leads into it. In fact, it's actually vital to understand chapter 10 in order to understand chapter 11. Funnily enough, it was you know written together. Makes sense, right? Um, but we're turning to Hebrews 10. We're going to look at verse 32 to 39, which is the third part of the section which runs from verse 19. So we'll pick up at 19 and read from there, but we'll consider from verse 32 in the sermon. This is God's word for us today. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For 
quoting Habakkuk, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. And as we come to consider it, let us pray. <clears throat> our Lord, our Father, we come before you as your children, hungry for the bread of life. We long to hear your voice. We long to hear of Jesus. We long to see him glorified. We long to hear from him. And you have told us in your word that when the Bible is preached, Christ speaks to his people. And so we ask that as a man preaches the word of God, that Christ would deliver a message to the heart of every single one of us. That, Lord, our preacher would be forgotten, but the voice of Christ would ring in our ears as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt like giving up? Giving up on something? Big, small? I remember when I served as an unofficial assistant to a pastor in Narawahia, there's, there was this mountain that he loved walking up, which is called the Hekara Martyrs. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend avoiding it unless you're really fit. Um, and he used to love walking up it, and he had just had a knee replacement, and he loved walking up it. And then he had a second knee replacement, and he still loved walking up it. And he was about 63 and was way fitter than me and made me feel really bad about myself. But he would go, let's go up, let's go up the mountain. We'd walk up the mountain and we'd pray at the top. Because you could get to the top and outlook all of Narawahia. So we'd go up there and pray for the town. And I, I never forget the very first time I walked up there. He didn't prepare me at all. He was like, oh, we'll just go for a little walk up this mountain. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, he said. He was a lying. I didn't confront him about that. But I'm fairly sure he was. It was not fun. I got, I got like a third of the way up. Only to discover when I hit the third flight of stairs that he informed me basically the rest of the way is stairs. 3,300 of them. Is it 3,300 stairs? You don't understand the impact of 3,300 stairs until you're a third of the way up them. I got a third of the way up them and I thought to myself, I think I might actually die. I might never make it down from this mountain. And then I turned around and looked at the pastor who was just wandering all the way up the top, not a problem whatsoever. And I thought to myself, well, I can't be embarrassed by a 63-year-old. So I carried on. I got half of the way out. Now I really felt like giving up. And I just, I wanted to hand in the towel and go home. He wouldn't let me. He made me go the whole way. He graciously allowed me to have some breaks. But I can remember that feeling of dread. Like when I saw that sign that says, you're halfway. And I'm like, I thought I was nearly there. There's more. And he's like, oh, there's just one, one more big set of stairs. 
And then you walk around the corner, it's massive. And I'm just like, nah, I just want to turn around and go home again. I'm done. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that in your Christian life? It's a far more serious thing, isn't it, when it's in your Christian life? Yeah, and there's many causes for it. It can be uh, opposition from loved ones or friends, uh, people at your workplace. You know, you try and try and live out the gospel in your workplace and all of a sudden no one sits with you at the lunch table. No one wants to talk to you. People begin to make fun of you. It's happened to me. I, I quit a job and shifted to another job. And I, you know, in the last job, I hadn't really acted like a Christian because I was too ashamed. And so when I started the new job, I thought, well, right out of the gates, I'm going to act like a believer. And it lasts about a week in people were putting up signs on walls to ridicule me in my workplace. And, and I can just remember thinking, is this really worth it? I, every, everyone hates me. I'm the only Christian in this whole printing factory. Everyone hates me. Why, why am I bothering? You know, maybe it's doubts. You know, you hear a clever atheistic argument and you think to yourself, well, it actually kind of makes sense. And, you know, all the Muslims, they think they're right. And all the Buddhists think they're right. And after all, what if Moses just made it up? And, and you start doubting and you start thinking about giving up and it's just too hard to keep on keeping on. You know, there's sickness and there's sorrow and, and I'm a Christian, but it doesn't get better. And I seem to be sicker than all my non-Christian friends and they all get fancy cars and I'm still driving a 1987 Honda Accord. Why is it that my life's horrible and all my unbelieving friends have great lives? Is it really worth it? Why should I bother carrying on? Or maybe you've come from an unbelieving family and your unbelieving family have basically just rejected you. You know, you've been taken out of the inheritance. They've said you're no longer a part of this home. You're no longer a part of our family. We've cut you from the world. We never want to speak to you again. You're an outcast from this community. You're not even welcomed in our town. If you come anywhere near this town, we will chase you out of town and we will beat you. Okay, maybe you haven't faced that, but that's what the Hebrews faced. Welcome to the world of the Hebrews. This letter was written somewhere in the mid-60s, just prior to the temple being destroyed. And so at this time, the Christians were still primarily seen by most people as Jews. And so they still tended to associate and hang out with the Jews. They would still go to synagogues. They would still have family and friends around them. But what quickly happened, especially in the sort of 50s and 60s, was the Jews really began to dislike the Christians. And it began to be seen not just as a little bit of an odd sect, but as a heresy, as a problem that needs to be eliminated. So they begin casting them out. And so if you're a Jew and you become a Christian and you're running a blacksmith, all of a sudden, no one comes to your shop anymore. And you go bust. And you've got no money. And you're no longer welcome to your family's house. You are removed, like Paul, removed from your inheritance. Paul was cut off from his family completely. That, that's, that's the context around this letter. And the, the writer to the Hebrews writes to them. 
And he's writing to them from beginning to end in order to spur them on. You see, they're tempted to turn back to the temple. They're tempted to turn back to Judaism because it's easier. Because at this stage, the temple in Jerusalem haven't been destroyed. So they've got peace. They have religious freedom. And so they think to themselves, well, back at the temple, we had sacrifices, everything was pretty good, we, we were respected, we got special privileges in the Roman Empire, now we're just cast out and no one cares about us. Why do we bother? Let's just go home. Let's just go back home again. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he writes to them and he tells them that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the people in the wilderness who forsake, forsook their God. That Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than David. Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament put together. Jesus is the great reward of our souls. And so as he argues that, we, we get our way to chapter, to chapter 10, and, and the writer seeks to bring this really strong exhortation. And so in verse 19 to 25, he delivers what we call the indicative. He delivers a bunch of gospel truth statements. And so you'll see there, if you just briefly look, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The curtain's been opened up. Verse 21, we have a great high priest. 22, we've got a full assurance of faith. We have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've been made clean with pure order. And then he brings the exhortation in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession. Don't give up, but spur one another on. Don't neglect meeting together because that's just going to make it harder but rather build one another up and pursue the Lord together. And then he brings two types of exhortations or encouragements. He brings a negative warning, and then he brings a positive encouragement. So firstly, we won't deal with this one, but in verse 26 through 31, he brings that, that section, which is kind of really scary to read, isn't it? It's kind of a pretty intimidating, especially when he says that in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has, was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of God? It is a fearful thing to hand, fall into the hands of a living God. What's he saying? Don't turn back. Because if you forsake what you've claimed to be, you will fall under the terror of God's judgment. And it is a terrifying thing to fall under God's judgment. Because not only are you under God's judgment, but you're doing so after receiving visibly all of the benefits. It's like when a covenantal child walks away from the faith. They've received all of the benefits of the blessings of a covenant. And they say, I want nothing to do with this. And they turn their back on it and they walk away from it. And they are in a worse state than the unbeliever who has never known anything. And so he brings this very harsh warning and threat. 
But then, like a good teacher, he follows it up with a glorious encouragement. And I want, I, want to sh- I, want to, I want you to see three things. I want us to look at three things. The, the writer to the Hebrews is going to remind us of three things that we need to remember if we are going to keep on keeping on. If we are going to endure to the end, there are three things to remember that will help us immensely. Firstly, we must remember the former days. The writer says in verse 32, recall or bring to mind the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It says, call, call to mind what it used to be like, what you've been through. Remember the old days. Now, We know that um, an obsession with nostalgia is not a good thing, but that's not what he's encouraging us to do. He's he's pointing them back to quite a specific period of time, just after their enlightenment. It's that period in the book of Acts, around about Acts 8 through 12, where we run into things like the martyrdom of Stephen, the beheading of James, and the outbreak of persecution by the apostle Paul, or by Saul at the time, upon the church, when the church was greatly under trial. And he points them back to that period and says, don't forget what happened just after you were saved. You endured a great struggle with immense sufferings. And then he lists those sufferings, doesn't he? You were publicly exposed, reproached, and afflicted. The word order is actually reproach, affliction, and publicly exposed. And I think what the author is trying to say is not so much you were publicly exposed through these things, but rather, first, they ridiculed you. I mean, you can imagine, right? I mean, this is written primarily to Jews. You can, re- you can imagine the Jew sitting in his home and going, actually, did you know Jesus is Yahweh? Jews would say, are you out of your mind? You must be insane. The Lord our God is one. There's no way Jesus can be God. And they would ridicule them and make fun of them. And, and, you know, after ridiculing them, the people wouldn't return. The people would stand strong. So what did they do then? They beat them. They flogged them. They harassed them. They pursued them. They murdered them. They tortured them. And so they endured all sorts of suffering and pain. But that not being enough, on top of that, they publicly exposed them, meaning they put them on show for everyone to join together as a spectacle. The the word in the Greek is where we derive the word theatrics. They made a show out of them, a theatrical performance out of them. Now, you you might be tempted to think to yourself at this point, um, how is it an encouragement to remind someone of the last time they suffered? It doesn't make much sense, right? Oh, you're suffering? Well, remember how much worse it was last time. It's like, that's the worst pastoral counseling advice, right? You go and visit someone who's sick and you say to them, well, you know, it could be worse. You could have cancer and be dying, you know. Like, you would have a hernia if I said that to you, right? 
<laughs> Bad pun. Um, but why does he do that? Well, he does that because the importance is not so much what they endured, but what they did at that time when they endured the suffering. You see, they endured these severe trials, these immense struggles, but then the writer goes on to say in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. And before that, sometimes being partners with those so treated, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, it's not so much, hey, remember that you got persecuted last time. It's remember what you did last time. Last time you suffered probably far worse things than you're enduring right now. And what you did is you partnered. The word is like having fellowship with or counting yourself with someone. You partnered with those in prison. In other words, they went to them and ministered to them. They showed sympathy to them. That word for compassion is sympathy. We have a sympathetic high priest. It's that same word. Now, you might think, well, that's fine. People visit people in prison. It's not that special. Except what happens if you visit a person in prison who's hated by everybody in town? You're counted with them, right? You're now one of them. And so you expose yourself to the very same treatment. And then, and this is just mind-blowing, isn't it? They joyfully. They joyfully watch their pl property get plundered. I mean, don't you hate it when someone steals your stuff? I can remember vividly, I can remember the disdain and the just unbelief in my children when they were about this big in Huntley. We had just moved to Huntley, probably the roughest part of New Zealand at the time. In fact, the newspaper called it the roughest part, and we were on the roughest street and, and you know, my, my three little children were playing outside. We were on a corner section, and one of them left a whole bunch of toys out just by the fence. And a kid came over and picked them up. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, no, mine walked off. And I can just remember this just unbelief. Of, I can't believe someone just stole my stuff. They actually just took it. They just could not believe that this just took place. I mean, no one likes getting something burgled, right? I was speaking to a pastoral friend in Timaru who in the last 14 years has been burgled five times. Had his house stripped five times in 14 years. Brutal. They rejoiced in watching their houses get plundered. Now, you might ask yourself, what does it mean for a house to get plundered? I know it seems obvious. What they're referring to is a particular practice whereby basically the local authorities would say, you can plunder that guy. It's totally fine. He's a scumbag anyway. Go and plunder him. Anything not worth taking, burn it. So it wasn't like, hey, we came and took your silver and gold. It was, we've taken all of your valuables and we've just dumped the rest and burnt it in a massive pile and you have nothing but a shell. And they rejoiced. How can you rejoice in that? Because they knew that it's just stuff. 
and that they have an eternal possession which far outstrips in glory everything in this life. Because at the end of the day, my car, my house, my TV, my computer, my whatever is precious to you means absolutely nothing when you're six feet under the ground. And in a hundred years, no one is even going to remember you, except for maybe, if you're lucky, a great-grandchild. No one's going to care you even existed. Sorry. None of us are cool enough to get written in history books. But all of us in Christ are welcome to an eternal, unfading glory that will never rust Remember, Jesus says, build yourself treasures where thieves cannot break in and steal. Brothers and sisters, we're so tempted to focus upon the seen things right in front of us, aren't we? We're so tempted to give our lives to the stuff of this world. And it counts for nothing. It's empty. It's hollow. Yes, we're given the joys of creation to enjoy while we're in this life. But in the great scheme of things, compared to the glory of the face of Christ, it's nothing. So remember where you've been. And we can all do this, can't we? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you can look back to three minutes ago. You can look back to the day of your salvation and remember how the Lord worked in your life. And if you've been a Christian for... 80 years, can't you look backwards in your life and see the hand of the Lord and the way you've endured? And why is that so important? Because when you're halfway up the Hakaramatas and you turn around and look at all the stairs on the way back down, it would be a real shame to turn around. And when you're three quarters of the way there and you turn around and look back down, why would I give up? I've been through all this already. You've already endured this long, brothers and sisters. Why would you throw in the towel and exchange an eternal treasure for the judgment of God. So look backwards in order to go forwards. But then he says, secondly, remember, remember, not just, not just what lies behind us, but remember the great reward. He says in verse 35 and 36, therefore, do not Throw away your confidence that has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You know, if you only ever look backwards, eventually you tend to go stationary. You ever met people like that who live in the past? That You know, they live in some era of greatness. You meet these people in church sometimes, and the only thing they ever talk about is what we used to do 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago we used to, and 50 years ago we did this, and 100 years, probably not 100 years ago, but you know what I mean. Or they look back to previous generations. Back in the Puritan days, they used to. If we could only get back then, then all of our problems would be solved. The pastor said to me the other day, did you know back in the days Men like Martin Lloyd-Jones used to preach 12 times a week. 12 times a week, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be back there again? It's easy, isn't it, to always be looking backwards and thinking, oh, for the good old days. But God doesn't want us 
to fixate upon the past. He wants us to remember the past, but then remember what lies ahead and pursue it. And so he says, the great reward and the great promise. What is he talking about? Well, the great reward is probably a reference to the rewards for faithfulness that Christ talks about. You remember in the parable of the talents? Those that are faithful with 10 talents receive 10 cities. Those with five talents receive five cities. There is a reward of eternal uh, payment that comes not for uh, earning our salvation, but as a reward of faithfulness. We're saved by faith alone, but by faith we work, and there is a form of rewarding of that at the end of our lives. We don't know all the details. It's fascinating. 120 years ago, Everyone talked about this. In the last 120 years, it's almost vanished. Almost no author writes about heavenly rewards anymore. I think there's a fear of talking about it that people might accuse us of thinking about works-based salvation. But it's a motive. Remember Jesus? Blessed are you when they persecute you. Why? Because you have riches in heaven. When I was a little kid, I went to a sports day once. We had this uh, music teacher, and he was just everything a music teacher is. He was cool. He was hip, and used to hang out with all the kids. And and one of the kids, because we used to have the sports uniform, and it, and it had a little shield on it, and the shield had a cross on it. And so we're we're at this country school with all these other country schools doing a cr- athletic day, and and one of them was just standing there ridiculing us for the cross on our shirt, and I was so upset. And, and I spoke to this music teacher, and he said to me, Logan, um, every single time you hear someone ridicule yourself, just hear a coin dropping in a coffer. I was like, what? He's like, well, Jesus says that blessed are you when they ridicule you because you have riches in heaven. Let it motivate you to face and enjoy everything because this is not your home. And we can do that, can't we? We get so hurt here, and, and it's right to be hurt. And it's horrible being persecuted. No one enjoys it. But when we remember what waits before us, it's a lot easier, isn't it? And he says the promise, that you might receive the promise, endure the will of God, do the will of God, which is enduring, so that you might receive the promise. What's the promise? It's eternal life, right? It's the removal of sin. It's the removal of wickedness. It's the removal of judgment. Yes, it's all of those things. It's removal of sickness, the removal of the curse upon the world. It's perfect fellowship with one another, perfect joy, perfect love, perfect fellowship, never fearing, no more darkness, no more sea. But more than that, isn't it? It's far more than that. It's perfect communion with our God, perfect fellowship with the Father, Through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will see face to face. And and the Holy Spirit, without sin hindering our relationship whatsoever, the Holy Spirit will work within us to draw us to God, that we will see him as he truly is. That's the promise. That's what you promised, brothers and sisters. Why would you not endure for that? I mean, don't you want to see God? Don't you want to see Jesus Christ with a smile 
upon his face and not with the wrath of the Lamb upon his face. Don't you want to dwell with him forever? Rejoicing in his excellencies, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his wisdom, his power. Don't you want to see the hands and the feet and the scars and the side and the crown of thorns that left scars upon his brow? Don't you want to see the saints of old and speak to the thief upon the cross? Don't you want to figure out who the writer to the Hebrews is? Oh, man, I want to know who wrote this book. It lies before you as a promise written in the word of God, sure and fixed in heaven, offered freely for you. Press on to obtain it. And our great example is Jesus, isn't it? You see, this, this section, you've got to ignore chapter divisions, especially in the book of Hebrews. Out of any of the books of the Bible, ignore the chapter divisions in Hebrews because this section is going to segue straight into chapter 11, which is an example of everything he's talking about in our section today. And he's going to finish in chapter 12 with these words in verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, pay attention to this, concentrate, look at the words, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you understand the logic here? Jesus is approaching the cross all through his life, He's read Isaiah 53. He knows what's coming. He's wept in the veil of tears. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken and smitten and afflicted by men. And the thing that motivates him, the writer to the Hebrews says, is the joy that is set before him. He looks beyond the cross, beyond the grave, beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension to the throne room of God where he will sit. And he looks to eternity where he will be gathered with a great host of captives, with men from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, gathered before him as one people in perfect unison. He looks at you in the future as his reward for his faithfulness. And he endures all things that he might obtain the promise of God. God promised to him, my son, faithfully execute your office and I will give you the nations. I will give you the people and I will restore all glory and praise and honor to you before all peoples. And is a day not coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? It's coming. And Jesus sees that and says, I will endure the cross. I will despise its shame. I will walk through all of it for the sake of obtaining the crown of glory. And then you look into heaven in Revelation, and what do you see? You see 24 elders gathered around their throne. And as they're seated around the throne, what's upon their heads? Crowns. Their prize for their faithfulness. And you know what they do with it? They proudly strut around like peacocks and say, oh, look at my crown. 
No, they take it off and they cast it down before God and they say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's our destiny, brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue the crown of glory that you may lay it down at the King of glory's feet. But there's one more, which is much quicker. You see, we must, we must look backwards and, and remember the former days, and we must look forwards and remember the great reward and the great promise, but we must also remember, and this is absolutely pivotal, we must remember who we are. We must remember who we are. You know, psychologists know this. Pagan psychologists, they know this. If they're, if they're dealing with, with uh, people with addictions and things like that, that, they will tell you that you know when a person is fully broken in addiction when they no longer think of themselves like a smoker or a drinker or a drug user. A person has not broken the addiction to food until they no longer feel and think of them as a fat person. It's the way it works. Well, the reality is they got their logic from the Bible, whether they realize that or not, because the Bible said it first. Have a look at the last verse in our section, verse 39. But we, this, this is striking, isn't it? He's just spent all of this time saying to them, you need to endure. I know you're facing hardships. This is what you need to do. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Do this. Endure this. Look at the glory of Christ. Pursue the reward. You need to do this. And then he says, but, but we are not of those who shrink back. And he includes himself. And he speaks corporately of all believers. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's that warning in verse 26 to 31. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, don't forget who you are, my dear readers. You are believers. And when he says, remember that we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who are of faith, who preserve their souls. He's not saying, look at yourself and remember how fantastic you are. Because we all know that doesn't work, right? The more we look at ourselves, the more twisted up in knots we get. His point is, look at yourself as you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember the great confession you've made, as he says at the beginning of the section. Draw near to the one who has opened the way. It, it's like Martin Luther. I've just begun reading this book called The History of the Reformation by a French guy whose name I'm not going to say for the sake of our French sister who will be offended by my pronunciation. Um, but the, in this book, he talks about Luther. And, and Luther, prior to the big discovery which initiates the Reformation, he's wrestling with the monks under the load of sin and he's just castigating himself. Like we're talking weeks without food and water. 
because of his sin, trying to make himself right with God. And there's this man who becomes his friend who's called John Stalpitz. And John Stalpitz comes to him and he says to him, Luther, stop looking at yourself. Look at the wounds of Christ. He comes back to him about a, a week later and there's Luther on his mat on the ground just wailing and weeping over himself. And Stalpitz says, Luther, stop looking at yourself. Look at the wounds of Christ where the grace and mercy of God is found. Luther, remember who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you were elected in love. In Christ, you were redeemed. In Christ, you were washed. In Christ, you will be sanctified. In Christ, you will be brought home. In Christ, you will reign with Him. In Christ, you are adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, you have received every spiritual blessing from God. Don't look at yourself. Look at Christ, He says. It's the greatest motivation. Why would I turn to sin and away from God? And why would I give up when I'm in Christ? When I'm united to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the great God, man. Why would you? It doesn't make any sense, does it? So let me ask you again. Are you tempted to give up? What pressures do you feel, brothers and sisters, from without and within? Don't give up. He is worthy of every enduring effort you can yield. And by faith, let me urge you, brothers and sisters, by faith, for the joy set before you, endure all things for his sake. And may God grant us for his glory and his praise to do so. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and you have united us to Christ. And so we pray that in the same way that you have done everything for our salvation, that you would do everything to bring us safely home. Lord, Work in us by your spirit that we might set our eyes in heavenly places, not on earthly places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.